0: I look around this morning, obviously there are, some, there are some open spaces, and I was joking with Nelson earlier, and I said, you got all your friends around you, you know, and of course that was before Miss Marilyn felt sorry for him and sat next to him, but, but you know, this is travel season as we know, vacation season during the summertime, folks in and out of town and all of that, and it's sort of to be expected that sometimes there will be more empty spaces than others. And, you know, recently, of course, my family and I went on a trip and we traveled from here and we went down through Tennessee to Chattanooga, to Atlanta, to Macon, to Valdosta, to uh, Ocala, to Gainesville, finally to Orlando. And we settled there, got there all the way in one day, as a matter of fact, left after church, drove all the way there with four children. And thank God for DVD players in the van and all of that, you know. But, you know, once upon a time when you went on a trip, you had to take something called a map. Now, some of you will remember these things. They're a little bit old now. You had to take something called... Now, if you're young, you won't, you won't understand this. Just so you know, fellas, this is a map <laughs> made of paper. And it unfolds like this. And it contains on it a picture of a whole state. This happens to be the state of Georgia. When we moved to Georgia in 2007, they gave us a map. Figured you might need to know where you're going. You know, if you remember those trips that you used to take and and, and you'd be driving down the road and you say, All right, now here's where we want to go. And then you'd have to chart your course. You'd say, here's where we are, this is where we need to go. We're at the top of Georgia, we need to get to the bottom. Which means we have to go through Atlanta to get there. Is it better to go straight through Atlanta on seventy five or take two hundred eighty-five around? Just a word of the wise goes straight through. But 285 is not your friend. But how do you get there? You want to make sure to get there. You got to look at the map. And wasn't it funny? Ladies, if your husband was driving, he didn't want any part of the map. I know where I'm going. Been there before. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Don't remember, but I've been there before. So he wouldn't want any part. You're over there in the passenger seat. You've got the map held up. And you're saying, this isn't the right way to go. And he's saying, leave me alone. I'm telling you it's not the right way to go. You ought to take a left. No, I got it. I'm, I'm positive. Finally, finally, he might admit, all right, tell me where we are. Then I'll figure out where we're going. And so you try to then figure out, here's where we are. And the last place we passed was Dalton, Georgia. There's nothing between Dalton and Marietta. We're somewhere in the middle. That's sort of where we are. And you say, all right, I got it now. Except somehow he messed it up again. And you wound up. Finally, he would stop and finally ask for directions. And you know what? You go into a gas station. They always know how to get places, don't they? Where are we? Number one question. Then the question in return is, where are you trying to get to? We're trying to get here. And your question in return is, which way should I go? And those folks there in the gas station, they try to tell you, you maybe even took your map in there. You know, eventually... You throw the map out, and you figure it's probably not worth the trip anyway, and you turn around and go home. But no, what you do is now you've got a GPS. Listen, we took that trip to Walt Disney World. I didn't look at a map the whole time. All I did was I punched in Walt Disney World, Orlando, Florida, and it took me exactly there. Nancy and I didn't have a single argument about where we were going. It was great. Listen, if you want to stop arguments in the car... By a GPS. That's the way it is. And a DVD player. But that's, that's another story. But isn't it interesting how the, the quality of your trip back then was dependent upon a couple of things. How good is your map and how good were the directions you got at the gas station? Sometimes you stop and ask, where are we? And you look back and you say, well, that's how we got here. I can see that. You know, the truth is your journey in life is exactly the same. Your journey in life is dependent upon a couple of very important factors. It's determined by these same factors. It's determined by what and who you relied on to get you where you are. I want to do a little bit of an informal, and it will be completely anonymous, a little bit of an informal poll this morning. And so you'll see these questions or these statements that you can respond to on the screen in just a second. I also would encourage you, because I like the interaction If you've not yet scanned the code, if you've got a smartphone or a tablet, play along for just a second. If you've got a scan feature, a scan app, scan the code, it's on the back side of the the sermon outline, and it will take you to some online notes, and in that you can answer these questions, and I'll be able to see, not completely anonymously, I'll be able to see the percentage of who answers what. Now, the the evaluation this morning is as if we're on the trip, and we first, in order to get where we want to go, we have to figure out where are we. And so here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to help me this morning by figuring out where are we. So four particular statements. Austin will pull these up on the screen. You can see them, of course, listed. The first question is... And let me just tell you this before I, before I get to it. This is a summary, essentially, of what Paul taught in the book of Philippians, as we've seen. It's a four different chapters, four different summaries. I know and am focused on what matters most in life. You'll see there, if you're following online, you can, you can punch in your answer, and I will be able to see the percentage. I won't see who did it and whatever. But t- just take an inventory real quick. Maybe, maybe you, you in your own mind, you're, you're sitting there and you can answer these. I know, and therefore, am focused on what matters most in life. You say, yeah, all day, every day. Or while well, I'm sitting in church, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm focused. I know what matters most. I'm focused, or you know, only on days that don't end in Y. You know, it's basically never. I, I'm, I'm never focused. I don't even know what's most important. Therefore, how can I focus on it? So you see three different options there. Let me see if we've got some. Some results here. I'm trying to pull these up. <clears throat> Hopefully some of you are answering the question. You're playing along. At least make me feel good. Let's see here. We've got for the most part right now, I know and am focused on what matters most in life, sure, if I'm sitting in church. That's that seems to be the consensus so far. I was sort of expecting that. You know, it's true about life that a lot of times when we're in church, we're we're face to face with it. It's right in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm honest. I know what matters most, and right now, I'm absolutely focused on that. That seems to be consensus. Let's go to the next question. My focus in relationships is on how I can benefit someone else. Three different options. Absolutely. That's that's what I try to do. Or well. About half the time, and most, I'm not really sure. You know, half the time I'm focused on myself, and the other half, yeah. Or maybe your philosophy in life is, life is every man for himself. That's just the way it is. I'm going to take care of me because nobody else is going to. But why should I try to benefit somebody else? They're not going to do anything for me. Just be honest. Let's let's be honest. Again, the, the consensus seems to be right now uh, about half the time. We're focused on others or we're focused on ourselves. And that's true. That's just the way that it is. I would expect that among people like you are, we have very few folks who are going to admit, at least, that it's every man for himself. And I would venture to say that nobody wants to sound too prideful. So I'm not going to say, well, absolutely all the time, it's always focused on somebody else. So we're probably going to split the difference and say about half the time. Third statement. Based upon chapter 3, by the way, of Philippians, my daily goal is to see Jesus be the big deal of my life. That's my daily goal. And you may say, yeah, absolutely, He is my everything every day. Now, he is the focus, He is the big deal of my life, where you may say sometimes or you may say rarely. I wonder. I wonder for you what it is. I'll refresh my notes, but the last time that I checked, it was right down the middle. Sometimes He is my everything. Not rarely, you know, quite often, but but not all the time. Sometimes He is my everything. Let me refresh. And that's it. Sometimes He's my everything seems to win the day. Fourth statement, I am content confident and joyful no matter the circumstances. Now you may say if somebody says yes, they're just crazy. They literally don't know what's going on in their life. They, they have stuck their head in the sand or, or, or whatever, or they're on something. I'm not sure, but you, you say there's no way. You may say humbly, yes, I have learned to be content, to be confident, to be joyful, no matter the circumstances. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon, and the point was, and Clyde and I have talked about this, was stop pacing the floor and get on your knees. Stop worrying so much. Paul said, don't worry, but pray. Do You find yourself content, confident, joyful, no matter the circumstances. What seems to win the day is, again, down the middle. Sometimes. You know, if I'm honest, sometimes... I am content. Sometimes I'm confident. Sometimes I'm joyful. But sometimes the circumstances change. And I respond accordingly. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's, there's none of that that surprises me. In fact, if I were to be answering these questions, I probably would say the same exact things. You know, sometimes. Boy, I wish it were more. I, I want to ask you this morning, are you where you want to be in life? And more importantly, far more importantly, are you where God wants you to be in life? You're here for a reason this morning some came out of habit some came because you seriously you just want to hear from God. Some came because you realize you're not where you need to be. You're not where God wants you to be in life. And you want something to be different. You know something needs to be different. You're tired of being right down the middle. You're tired of being lukewarm. You're tired of resting on the fence. And you say, I want to be all in for the Lord or just give up completely. But I've got to have something change in my life. No matter where you are, no matter what your answers to those four statements, I can tell you how you got there. There's an undeniable equation for all of us this morning that you'll see there on that outline. And it is very simple. Your life is equal to your mind plus your mentors. I can tell you that no matter where you are in life today, I know how you got there because I know how I got there. And it's exactly what Paul will teach us this morning from Philippians chapter 4, that your life, where you are right now, Whatever that may entail, your relationships, your, your mental state, your joy, your contentment, your job, whatever it may be, where you are in life right now has been determined and is equal to your mind plus your mentors. We'll see that this morning. Are you where you want to be? And more importantly, are you where God wants you to be? Now let me share something with you real quick before I read the Scripture. I want you to know that based upon Scripture, that no matter where you are right now this morning that Jesus will meet you right where you are. You don't have to do anything to make yourself more lovable by him. We try all kinds of stuff. Some of you came this morning to try to score some points with God. Let me tell you God didn't love you more this morning because you got him and decided to go to church. And he wouldn't love you any less if you slept in again. Jesus will meet you right where you are. You may identify and all those answers are nothing close to what God wants you to be. Jesus will meet you where you are. Just admit that you're lost. Just admit that you don't know where you are. Just admit that you need Him. Just admit you say, look, I I can't get to where you want me to be on my own. I'm done. I give up. He'll meet you where you are. Just admit that you're lost. And I mean that for those of us who have been in church for 120 years. Just admit that you're lost and say, I can't get to where I need to be. But once he finds you where you are, he won't leave you where you are. You realize that? It's a great thing about Jesus. It's not just that that he loves you and, okay, all right, I get that. He won't leave you where you are. He loves you enough to save you and then what the Bible says, to sanctify, to clean you up and to take you where he wants you to be. So in that, just move over and give him the driver's seat on your journey through life. It's something where you just take directions and he rides shotgun. Just get out of the way. You say, Lord, I don't want to be where I am anymore. I know it's not where you want me to be. This is not pleasing to you. I know it's not. And so I'm sliding over. <laughs> in fact, I'm just going to jump in the back seat. You drive. I'm done. Maybe this morning you need to admit that you're lost or you just need to admit I've been driving in the wrong direction. I'm getting out of the way. And i say this as well, that your trip can, and it will be different, as he does his part and as you surrender yours, which we'll see this morning, your mind and your mentor surrender to the Lord. Let's look at the scripture Philippians chapter 4. Catch you up real quick. We're in a series that's close to being over 20 sermons on a four chapter book. Now, some of you are tired of this already. You don't have much longer to wait. This is 17. We've got three more. It'll be the middle of July. It'll be done. Maybe that's why the seats are empty. I don't know. Well, we've been in a series called A Letter from Your Pastor. And the idea is that Paul wrote to this church called the church at, at Philippi, the Philippians. He wrote a letter to them because they had asked him, 10 years after he had planted and started their church, they had asked, how are you doing? We heard some things aren't going so well for you. We hear you're on house arrest and, and you're not doing the greatest. How are you? And by the way, here's some, some money for you. Paul wrote in response to say, thanks for the money. Here's how I'm doing. And oh, by the way, since I'm your founding pastor, let me tell you some things. And that's what Philippians is about. We've gotten to the point, basically, where Paul is rounding the corner and heading home, and he's going to close out the letter in the next few weeks. And we're going to see this morning, really what I look at and say, here's the key to all that Paul wrote in Philippians. He raised the bar for them. Live a life, he said in chapter 1, worthy of the gospel. Raise the bar. Live as if Jesus is the biggest deal in your life. Do nothing if it doesn't get you closer to Jesus. And this morning, we'll see the absolute key to all of that. It's all wrapped up in your mind and your mentors. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 8 talks about your mind. Verse 9 talks about your mentors. What is it that's dominating your mind? Who is it that's directing your steps? That's what we're going to look at this morning. It starts with the fact that wherever you are in life is dependent at least in part on what's in your mind. None of us can deny that. Where you are in life is a combination of what's going on in your mind, which has then directed your actions, which has directed Your life, your mind. I want you to evaluate it as we go through these. Paul lists several different elements that he says fill your mind, dwell on these things. Some would say that if you're going to be a Christian, you just need to turn your mind off. It's just about blind faith. You realize the Bible flies in the face of all of that. Just look at the book of Proverbs. Constantly we are told to gain knowledge, gain wisdom, gain understanding, engage our minds. This Christianity thing, this following God thing is not some blind faith where we turn off our minds and we stick our fingers in our ears and we say, I'm just going to go through life not knowing anything. God encourages you. In fact, commands you to engage with your mind. What does the Bible say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't turn off your mind if you're a believer in Jesus. Engage it. Your mind matters, absolutely matters. God and the biblical writers, they knew that, and they also knew that whatever your mind focuses on, that enters your heart, and it shapes your actions, which shape your character, which shape the course of your life. Your mind matters. And so Paul says at the end of verse 8, dwell on all of these things. He lists them all, then he says, dwell on them. Essentially what he says, that word there, dwell, means to focus intently and then as a result to chart your course by. That's your new map. That's your new GPS. You want to know how to get from here to where God wants you to be? You need a new map. You need a new course. And Paul says, let me tell you all the things that will help to get you to where God wants you to be. You want to live up to all the stuff in Philippians? Then dwell on these things that Paul says. Here's what he tells us. First, whatever is true. Now, truth in our world today is an ever-changing thing. Truth is whatever I might feel is true at a particular time. Truth is dependent upon whomever I might be around at a particular time. Truth is maybe something we can know, but I'm not sure we can really know it completely. So what's the point? That's our world today. But truth according to what Paul is saying here is not what is true in that circumstance or true in this circumstance. What's situationally true? He's saying, no, no, no. What is true is it accords with Scripture? If you were to line it up against the Word of God, what would be true? He says, you need to fill your mind. Focus on. Chart your course by. What is true? According to the Scripture. I believe that we as believers in Jesus, we as a... Nation, we as a world, we are desperate for truth. What we see in our world today is a result of Satan's lies for decades and centuries. <clears throat> Make no mistake. He is the source, the Bible says, the father of lies. And he, he will do anything and everything he can to twist, to negate, to, to seemingly override the truth of God. We need to know the truth because Satan is a liar. And he is certainly alive and unfortunately well today. We need to know the truth. The truth in our lives does a lot of things for us. One of the things it does is to stabilize our relationships. I read the scripture this morning at the beginning of the service about restoring to me the joy of your salvation. You know, for some, we're in a very dry season because we've forgotten the truth about God and about who we are. For some, we need to be reminded that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will receive eternal life. We need to be reminded that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we've been set free from that. Some have forgotten the truth. And you are walking around today, though you're a believer in Jesus, you are walking around like a broken down, beaten up old sinner. Guess what? That's who you used to be. That's not who you are. Because by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made a new creation, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. The old is gone and behold, he says, look, the new has come. We need stabilization in our relationship with God because without it, we're going to be like a little bottle floating up and down across the ocean. Just debris scattered everywhere. That's the way our lives will be. It stabilizes our relationship with God. We know the truth. It also stabilizes our relationship with other people. How much of the drama in your relationships is caused by falsehood? Stuff that's just not true. Maybe, maybe they haven't said anything. It's a lie about you, but you think they're going to say it. Maybe you're just not sure where they stand with you. Maybe you've made stuff up in your own mind about them or they about you. How much of the lack of stability in our relationships come because we don't know and believe the truth about someone? How much difficulty in our marriages come because we don't believe the truth about our spouse? How much difficulty comes in relationship between parents and children because both sides or neither or one or the other doesn't believe the truth about the other? The truth brings stability in relationship. It also helps us in the midst of temptation. Take you back to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus had spent 40 days and 40 nights out in the desert with no food, no water, and the Bible says he was hungry and he was thirsty. You think? And in that moment, guess what happens? Satan himself showed up. And you know what he attacked Jesus with? Some temptation that was based upon some half-truth. Sort of true, but not completely. Yeah, used scripture, but not exactly in the right way, which made it a half-truth instead of completely true. And do you know what Jesus did in every instance? He fought temptation at every turn with truth. He said to Satan, I, I hear what you're saying, but you're twisting it. That's not exactly what the Lord meant right there. You realize that, don't you? That's not what He meant. No, 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 no. I'm not going to believe your lies in the midst of this temptation. The truth is that all of us who, who have fallen to temptation, which includes every one of us, have done so because we did not believe the truth of God. We did not trust God. Truth also helps us with a moral and spiritual compass. I am convinced. I really am. And I'll be honest with you. I have my days when I look in our world today and I have a crisis of faith, if you will. And I say, God, where are you and what are you doing? I don't see you. Lord, I, I don't know what the future of the church is going to be. Not just this church, but just the church in general. God, I don't, I don't understand it. It seems as if people are turning their backs on you, Lord, left and right. And, and we, the church, are going to be the target of all that. But I'm convinced of this. I don't know how long it will take. I don't know if it will be. In the next five years, 10 years, 20 years it will be 50 or 100 years. I have no idea how long it will take, but I'm convinced of this that some point, at some point, that whole system of not having any truth and being situationally driven by it, that whole system will collapse on itself, and people will come begging for the truth. I'll come begging for it. And guess who has the opportunity to hold it out if we so fill our minds with it? It's us. That's truth. I promise you this, I won't spend as much time on the others. Whatever is true, he says, chart your course by that. He goes on to say this, whatever is honorable. The word there means serious and dignified, Respectable and lofty, not childish, and useless, and just clutter in your minds. You ever get to the point where you can't make any decisions because you got too much going on in your mind? I can't figure out what to do today. There's so much going on. The Bible tells us here that if we'll focus and fill our minds with what is honorable, what's serious, what's dignified, what's most important, if we'll focus on those things, we'll have less clutter. Because the childish things, the ignoble, the vulgar things won't be a part of our minds. They won't dominate us and we'll keep out the things that won't help us. It's like a filter. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, he says, that means upright and fair. We look at God's character and we say, all right, I'm going to try to fill my mind with things that are just like him. He is just, he is upright, he is fair, and that's exactly the way I'm going to do it. Realizing God's system... That the the justness of God means that He will not tolerate sin, but the justness of God means that He paid for it as well in the the presence and person of Jesus Christ. He will not tolerate sin, but He did what was right, even when He cannot tolerate it, by coming Himself in the form of Jesus Christ to die for us. He's just. He's right. Certainly that will help us in our dealings with other people. When we begin to focus on what's just, what's right, What is the right thing to do by these people, regardless of what they have done to me? That's God's character. What's the right thing to do? Send Jesus to die for the sins of the world, even though they have turned their backs on me. When we begin to focus and fill our minds with that, you become a different person. Because the truth is, isn't it always easy to simply respond in kind? Well, they they, they did this to me, so I'm perfectly justified in doing this to them. To realize that God's love for us is a one-way street, not dependent upon our returning love to Him, the Bible says that He loved us first, and based upon that, our justness should lead us to love others regardless of what they do. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure—the word there means innocent, having no mixture of sin, in both thought and then in action and in purpose and motive—it means holy. This lays a foundation when we begin to fill our minds with what is pure, with what is holy. And let me tell you, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. Because even passively, you can have your mind filled with all kinds of impurities, even if you are not seeking it. And of course, the flip side is true as well. Many of us are caught up in seeking it. But he says, fill your mind with what is pure, with what is holy, with what is innocent. I'm convinced that we don't need to be ignorant of the ways of the world. We need to understand how it works and its temptations, but we need to be innocent of the ways of the world. The Bible tells us in Philippians we are to be unstained, or excuse me, in James, be unstained by the world. To be innocent of those ways. No mixture in our thoughts This is what lays the foundation for a life that's pleasing to God. Why? Because as as you take in impurities, guess what happens? They begin to work themselves into your life. Whether everybody knows or nobody knows, they begin to have effect. It's a life that's pleasing to God. It's built on purity and holiness. But it's not just holiness in the abstract. It also is most beneficial to us. Holiness is not just something that God holds up and says, well, just be holy. Only and exclusively, and and, and just because I'm holy. Yes, he certainly does say, be holy because I am holy. But you know what he knows as well? That as we are conformed to him, it's beneficial to us. It's not just for his weird pleasure that we should be holy. Yes, he wants us to conform to him, but guess what? He knows it will help us as well holiness in your relationships and in your mind and all of those things you can know that in those times when you're walking with God guess what it's a benefit to you whatever is pure he says and then he says whatever is lovely whatever is lovely now when I was a teenager I had a friend who liked this particular part of the verse he said whatever is lovely well she's lovely I'm going to think about her Not exactly what Paul's talking about here in Philippians chapter 4, so that's not an excuse to say, oh, she is very lovely, I'll just think about her, I'll dwell on her. No, 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 not what we're talking about. The word here, lovely, simply means whatever is able to win admiration. Things that are lovable. Paul referred in his letters to things like generosity, and kindness, and compassion, and forgiveness, and humility. Lovable qualities that we fill our minds with that over time they become a part of who we are and how we live. He closes this little section with whatever is commendable. That simply means it has the ability to avoid giving offense to someone. Sort of like lovable characteristics. But it makes us well spoken of and well thought of. Now this is not for our glory. This is not for us to take credit for. This isn't just so we'll be viewed as a bunch of nice little Christians. This is for the glory of Jesus Christ that in being commendable, in having a good reputation as Acts chapter 2 tells us with outsiders, that we might be able to win them to the Lord. Commendable. Well spoken of. Whatever can build for us a good reputation so that we can gain an audience so that we can bring glory to Jesus Christ. Paul says about all that, if there's any moral excellence, any praise, he basically sums it up and says, here's what we're talking about. All these things are morally excellent. They're all worthy of praise. He says, dwell on these things. Calculate your life. Chart your course by them. Fill your mind. Give careful consideration. Let them shape you on the inside and on the outside. The implication here is that we have the power to govern our thoughts, and therefore we're responsible for them. You say, well, I don't know where that thought came from. Fine, but govern it. Do something with it. Bring it into submission. Take every thought captive, the Bible says, for the glory of God. Make it obedient to Christ. The truth is that whatever enters your mind and dwells there enters your heart and dwells there and then enters your life and dwells and controls it all you don't think your mind matters, you're not paying attention. If you don't think your mind matters, then maybe you've just completely turned it off, or maybe it's been darkened so much you can't see anymore. This list of qualities is, I believe, something that all of us today say, that's what I want. You know, I look back and I say, I want my mind to be filled with truth, and I want to be honorable and just and pure and lovable and commendable. But those things you'll never possess if you don't fill your mind with them. Your mind matters. Paul said your life is dependent first upon your mind, and secondly, he said, on your mentors, look at verse 9, do what you have learned and received and seen in me. It's the third time that Paul has told him to follow his example. You might just look at him and say, ah, he's just arrogant. He's just trying to get Facebook likes and Twitter followers. That's all Paul cares about. He just wants to build his email list so that he can send it out and build his business. Not what Paul's talking about. Paul simply knows the value of a godly leader in the lives of people who need it. So he's not telling them to follow him for his own pleasure or to take credit for it. Because if they were to follow him, all they would see is a consistent love for Jesus. They would see congruity between his life and his teaching. They would see them being of one piece, not separated. And he says, not only look at me and listen to me and, and, and follow me, but do these things. Be the same way. I hope that as you're following people, that that's what you're looking for. There are lots of folks that can get you somewhere in business. There are lots of folks who can get you somewhere in sports. There are a lot of folks who can get you somewhere in relationship, but are they leading you toward a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. If you did, as Paul says, what you received and learned and heard and saw in them, where would it take you? If you wind up lost on the road, just blame the guy at the gas station who gave, gave you bad directions. If you wind up in life apart from where God wants you to be, guess what? It comes down to two things. It comes down to what have you allowed to dominate your mind and who have you allowed to direct your steps? I want to give you those two questions and I want those for me and for you to be what we think about this week. What have I allowed? What am I allowing? What will I allow to dominate my mind? And who am I allowing to direct my steps? Paul said at the close of verse 9, he said this If you will allow your mind to be dominated by the things of God, if you will allow someone who is a godly, Jesus loving person to help direct your steps, look what he says the peace, the God, rather, a God of peace will be with you. Guess what? That's where you've been wanting to go all along. I just want to have peace in my life. I just want to know and understand the will of God for my life. I just want to make sure that I am where God wants me to be. Only when God's truth, only when our minds are filled with His truth and put into practice, will we sense the God of peace with us. That's what we all want anyway. What dominates your mind? Who directs your steps? What dominates your mind and who... Directs yourself. Let me tell you, both of those are up to you. They're both up to you. You'll see on the backside of your little outline there the listing of the days of the week. Here's what I'd love for you to do answer both those questions each day. Just take that with you wherever you are. It's enough to fold up and put in a pocket, carry it in your purse wherever you're going, and just take an inventory. Today, what dominated my mind? And then compare that to the list that Paul gave in Philippians 4.8. Today, who was it that I allowed to direct my steps? Who am I trying to be like? Who am I following? And compare that to the life of Paul that he hints toward in Philippians 4 9. So today. Today ought to be easy. I mean, because all of you answered, you know, I I I know and focus on the things that matter most when I'm in church. So today ought to be easy. What dominated my mind? The things of God. It was so wonderful. I'm so blessed. Today ought to be easy. Who directed my steps? That guy wouldn't shut up. He just, that's him. Tomorrow's going to get hard. And Tuesday will get even more difficult. And by Wednesday, you will have forgotten the paper altogether. What is dominating your mind? Who is directing your steps? It's important enough this week to answer the question each day because I can tell you this, you'll wind up somewhere by next Sunday. And it will be determined by what this week has dominated your mind and who has directed your steps. This morning, as we draw to a close, I want you to evaluate as we started, where am I? And how did I get here? Where is it God wants me to be? And how am I going to get there? And maybe this morning... Your prayer either in your pew or if you want to come down here I'll pray with you. You can kneel here. You can get alone with God, do business with him. Maybe your prayer is simply Jesus, I need you to meet me where I am. I'm lost. I need your forgiveness. I'm giving you my life and I'm believing in you for salvation. Or maybe you just say, "Lord, I I've been driving in the wrong direction. <laughs> I'm moving over." Take me where I need to go. No strings attached. Maybe your commitment is, Lord, this week, I want the things of God to dominate my mind. And I, Lord, am praying that you would put people in my life who would help direct my steps towards you. Don't leave this morning without having done that kind of business with God. Without having talked with Him and answered the call of God on your life this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to a close of this service, we know that you're not done with us. So Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to respond to you even in this moment. Pray for those who need to admit that they're lost, that they need you. That apart from you, Lord, we are broken down, beaten up, sinners bound for hell. And that, Lord, we would simply invite you to meet us right where we are and to save us. For those who need to get out of the driver's seat, what I pray today would not just be a nod of the head, but a commitment of the heart. We commit this week to fill our minds with that list that Paul mentioned in Philippians 4.8. And to submit ourselves to your leadership and that of godly people. Dominate us, Lord. Direct us. We pray in Jesus' name.